Hi, this is Hannah Heinzeker, the Executive Director of the Mennonite, and you're listening to the Peace Lab podcast. Just a quick note before we get started today. This conversation includes conversations with the stories of writers incarcerated on death row. As such, some of the stories are intense and contain subject matter that may not be suitable for children you're listening with. Just wanted to give you a heads up. Thanks for listening. Welcome to Peace Lab, the podcast focused on current events, faith, and peacemaking from a Mennonite perspective. I'm Jason Boone of the Peace and Justice Support Network. Glad to be back. Glad to have overcome technical difficulties. Last week, I did not get to join Hannah in that great conversation with Sarah Thompson, but we're back today. Hannah, nice to see you again. Yes, nice to see you too, Jason. It's been a while since we've both been in the same podcast, so it's good. That's right. Same podcast, uh, same continent, same hemisphere, but not in the same room, but same podcast. Yeah. I'm really glad to be on the call today because we're going to be talking to Chris and Lars from the Lifelines Collective. And this is a project that's been going on. It's been on my radar for a while, but I've been wanting to know a little bit more. And they've graciously given us some time today. And so we're going to sort of jump right in and, and let Lars and Chris tell us about Lifelines Collective and how they got started. Um, and, and then we'll go from there. So I think, Lars, we'll start with you. Uh, Lars Okerson, you're coming to us now from Honduras doing some work with MCC, and we'll hear some more about that. But as one of the co-founders of Lifelines Collective, can you just set the stage for the audience in here and tell us what it is and, and maybe even going back and how it got started? Thanks so much for having us on here, Jason and Hannah. I really appreciate you making the time to, to talk with us. It's, it's really good to be with you. Just briefly, the, the Lifelines Collective is a uh, group of creative artists, both inside and outside of prison, who work together to share creative work from incarcerated authors. Chris and I uh, are the two primary uh, people working on the outside, uh, but we work with currently 10 uh, incarcerated writers who live on death row in North Carolina to publish a podcast called Lifelines. When we tell the story of, of Lifelines, I like to go back at least 10 years because that's how long some of these guys have, have been in prison. Since they entered prison, and even before for some of them, they've been, they've been writing, expressing themselves creatively and trying to share that with, with people they love and, and people they, they want to, to connect with. After being incarcerated, they did that by hand, sending letters out to family, communicating that way. Some of their family and friends have set up blogs for them where they publish their creative work. But just last May, so May 2016, they got phone access. These, uh, these men living on death row in North Carolina got phone access for the first time, really. Before May 2016, they were allowed one 10-minute supervised phone call a year. And so they had to decide how to use that. And some of them had been protesting that abuse and had not uh, made those calls in, in a number of years. So they were given broader phone access, and that got some of them thinking how they might use this new avenue of connection to share their creative work with people on the outside. And so they reached out to Chris and I through some existing connections. We both uh, had the opportunity to take classes inside of Central Prison where they live as students at Duke Divinity School. And we put our heads together and thought we might be able to use uh, the technology available to us 
to begin recording their work by phone, creating an editorial process where they can get some feedback from editors on the outside, and then uh, publishing it as a podcast. We, we tested it out, and it, it seemed to work, and so we launched a Kickstarter campaign last August, so about a year ago, which went really well. We, we raised about $17,000 to get off the ground, and now we've been publishing for about a year. Uh, and Chris, did you have anything you wanted to add to this? Uh, is there part of the story here? You're a co-founder. Uh, anything else you think is important for our listeners to know about the, the origins or, or kind of how things are going now with Lifelines? Sure. Well, first of all, yeah, Jason and Hannah, just want to say thanks for having us on. Um, I think I could just underscore uh, what Lars said, that this has really generated, um, first and foremost, out of the work that the guys have been doing for a long time. And that uh, we consider this a collective uh, and we very intentionally try to make sure that this is something that we're doing together, that decisions are made for the organization, both by those on the outside and on guys on the inside. Y- you know, I think this is something that we hope we can continue um, and even even expand possibly to other sites. We've been contacted by folks at different prisons in the U.S., different death rows, um, and are hoping that, that the work that we do can continue to grow. Yeah, so I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about your process. You mentioned this kind of collective decision-making process. How do you work at identifying themes and work at getting content out there? What's that process look like? So far, each writer we have is prolific. So far, they, they've been, there hasn't been any shortage of work on their end. So we've been kind of working from their kind of deep reservoir. But going forward, I think we'll be generated both by the guys on the inside, but also working with um, editors on the outside. We have a team of about eight editors on the outside that will work collaboratively, both on individual pieces, but then planning pieces long term. And then in terms of organizationally, we have weekly meetings where members of the, our writers board, guys on the inside, call Lars and I, we all talk together, um, ma- make sure that we're working on things together, which can slow things down given the kind of things that separate us, but that's key to who we understand ourselves to be. I would add to that, that with a number of these decisions that we make as, as a collective, Chris and I are not making all these decisions. Uh, so when it, when it comes to adding, inviting new writers into the, into the collective, we have it's the, the writer's board chairs it's the writer's board that, that makes those decisions so that that all happens on the inside and uh, chris and i trust that that they will be acting in the best interest of the collective as they do so so we try to find appropriate ways to to share power uh, across the collective and that's that's one of them it's fascinating to me you know the creative impulses you know present across all humanity and you think about being in an extreme situation like which jeff rose is an extreme situation why is this creative outlet important to, to the folks that you've been working with? I mean, is that the conversations that you've had? Well, is this especially important? People are very passionate about it who are, who are participating. Why is this outlet especially important to someone maybe who, who's in those circumstances? I think part of being a human is being acknowledged as a person. And I, I think in the United States, we easily forget how many people are incarcerated in our country, the, the, the millions of people who live uh, in prison. And so I, I think that, that part of the impulse of, of Lifelines and the desire to share creative work is the desire for acknowledgement as a person uh, who may be living under duress, may be living in, in an awful situation, found themselves there by the circumstances of their lives. 
but they still live. They're still alive and they still have experiences, have relationships that they draw on and things that they want to share. So I think that that's pretty key here for one part. I think that's exactly right. And, you know, I'm sure each of our writers would say a different thing, um, would say something different. But in my experience, um, you know, in a situation where of, of deep, deep trauma um, yeah. and where, you, you know, these folks are, are literally awaiting their death, uh, you know, writing is, is not the only way, but one of the ways that they are able to resist kind of the forces at work on their on their lives uh, the forces that want to shut them away and silence them writing is a way for them to sort of insist on living resistance is something that's sort of in vogue now so i almost hesitate using that word but there's there's a deep kind of resistance going on when um, somebody who is awaiting their execution chooses to tell their own story and the stories of of those that have lost their lives ahead of them it seems like in some ways your work also fits into a growing movement in the United States. I think there have been long-term concerns about our prison system, but perhaps more recently, um, a book like Michelle Alexander's The New Jim Crow has sort of elevated those concerns and the public discourse is getting perhaps louder, making some connections between slavery and the Jim Crow system and now incarceration and also looking at widespread treatment of prisoners as well. How, if at all, are you hoping that your work fits in or impacts these conversations or helps elevate them? That's a really good question. Um, I know that, you know, Michelle Alexander and folks like Brian Stevenson and others have been really formative for both me and Lars and, and also the guys that we work with on the inside. You know, one thing I think of is that true that, you know, the mass incarceration is a new iteration of um, anti-Black violence in particular, and it evolved. Um, I think that for as long as there was a history of slavery in the U.S., there's also a history of resistance. Um, and I think our writers in particular see themselves as joining that great lineage of people that are resisting forces of violence and of evil and are creating space for, for life, for new possibilities uh, apart from forces at play. I think that as we think about the carceral system in the United States and the, the need for reform of the justice system, I think we, Chris and I, and the writers, we believe that, that if we're going to make progress uh, as a society, we can't do so without listening to the voices of those most affected. So we, we need to be hearing from the people whose lives have been impacted by incarceration. And that, that means uh, both people incarcerated, their families, people on the other side of the courtroom received other harms. Uh, we, we need to be hearing from across the system to, if we're going to move forward together. We think that it's important that these writers' voices are heard at this time, both for that reason and just for the simple reminder, like Brian Stevenson has made so clear on so many occasions, that we're, none of us should be defined by the worst thing we've ever done, and that there, there needs to be a just mercy at the heart of our, of our system of, of justice in this, in this country or in the United States. So tell us about these voices then. Uh, tell us, what do they communicate? Are, are there a, you know, a particular episode or a piece that stuck out with you personally been really emotionally impactful or, or otherwise just memorable for you, uh, for either of you personally? One piece that I find kind of the most chilling, one that I can't shake, uh, is a piece called Shelf Life by James Thomas, where he talks yeah. about being tortured as a young boy. I think the first line is something like, I was four when my father started to kill me you know it's a piece that is 
I think objectively well done kind of poetically he he tells a really such a gut-wrenching story and it's something that you know I find so difficult to listen to I you know it's also I think a reminder of the fact that you know a lot of the folks that find themselves in prison or on death row have been victims of very serious crimes themselves you know in a situation where folks have committed crimes that these things haven't happened in a vacuum that they have suffered abuse, you know, either familially or the abuse of sort of societal injustice as well. And I think James Thomas's piece is uh, is one that I think points towards that. Shelf life, James Thomas. I was four when my father first started trying to kill me. We never knew when it was going to happen. My mother would be working a night shift at the hospital, and my father might come home in that crazy mode. My siblings tried to protect me. It's really difficult to pick one. And there's other pieces like the one that we published this last week, Marching Orders by Enrico Fowler, that I think embodies the kind of spirit of radical radicalism and resistance um, to me in a way that's very surprising for somebody who's, whose whole life is on death row for him to have such kind of audacity and such sense of life to be able to make a piece like that I think is so in, in some ways those are that that's a sort of spectrum I think of of what the, the kind of pieces that we publish I would resonate with that shelf life was the one that w- popped into my mind at first but some of these pieces are so heavy and, and this one in particular it just stops you and you can't move after hearing it you have you have to sit with it and I think it was it was hearing that piece that caused Chris and I to, to begin to think about trauma in new ways and the trauma that affects people who are incarcerated, the trauma they experienced before incarceration, the trauma they experienced during incarceration. There's another uh, piece called High Rise by uh, Lyle May that recounts uh, his experience within the prison system uh, fairly descriptively uh, in that regard. And, and we realized that, that if Lifelines is really going to be about healing, that we need to take trauma seriously and find ways as a collective to, to help each of us heal from that or heal from those histories, uh, the histories of harms that we all carry with us uh, and, and recognize that that's ongoing. And also that for people on the outside, Chris and I, and for the editor, editors board and to, to an extent for, for listeners as well, the audience, that um, vicarious trauma is a, is a real thing too. That secondary trauma needs to be thought about. So that's, that's been start, some of our thinking. It's really hard to pick a single piece because uh, each one is so unique and shares this window into, into a person's life. The, the, our, the very first piece that we published also comes to mind, which is also titled Lifelines, as it happens, where uh, Paul Brown uh, talks about the experience of talking with his mom on the phone uh, and hearing his mom's voice, all that that evoked for him um, when he was able to make that connection again. So yeah, there's, there's a, a whole range of, of pieces that we publish and it's, as you begin to hear people's stories and, and get to know people, it, it becomes hard to select single anyone out as better, better or worse than the others. The one phone call allowed during the process may not seem like much, but it is a lifeline to a drowning man. I always call mom and just hearing the soothing cadence of her voice was reassuring. 
it reminded me that I belong to someone. Being on death row, I've long since gotten over the fear of being arrested and even of being in prison. I've never gotten used to not hearing my mom's voice, though. Over the past 15 years, there have been times when I felt disconnected, like I was adrift out to sea, hoping for a favorable wind, but no longer even sure of where home was. It bothered me, but I never said anything. In here, we either endure the conditions or succumb. I've always endured. And I'm struck, as you all keep on talking, I'm struck anew by the multiple layers of meaning within your name, this idea of lifelines, because that, you know, is, and you all probably know this, but this idea of kind of the measure of our days, our stories all kind of woven together or about life and survival really tied up together. Yeah. Yeah, we, that's, I, I like that, that insight that you have, uh, that you've brought, that, that we have our, the, the measure of our days is also a lifeline. Um, because when we thought about the name, we were drawn to it because of the multiple meanings that uh, these, these verses, these words that, that the writers share are lines that share life, right? They're uh, verses that share life with the, the listeners, as well as lifelines cast out from prison. These are things, this is a, this is a practice, a, a craft that these, that these writers have developed over years in order to continue living in a place that wants them dead on its terms. Then a third meaning that we're convinced that, that we all need a lifeline, that we on the outside may not recognize it, but that we, we need this lifeline too, that these are lines tossed to us to save us from a throwaway society, to save us from a culture that discards people and things like trash. And that if we're able, if, if we're attentive, we might be able to grab onto these and, and find new connections and stay connected for as long as we're able. On Peace Lab here, we talk about peace, but we talk about it in, in very spacious terms, I, I guess you would say, you know, knowing more of a shalom type peace, that there's a lot of different ways that we're working for wholeness. And just you know, hearing you talk at these different angles about what would it mean to treat everyone as fully human and to hear everyone's story, and then especially the, the trauma angle and, and recognizing how much trauma affects all our lives and in our society. Um, I'd be interested to hear from both of you, how do you think about peace? And, and where does lifelines fit in with uh, you know, maybe the you know, living the life or striving to be a peacemaker in whatever your context is? You know, I think that's a, a difficult question. You know, I, whatever I have to say, I say with, with deep fear and trembling, um, because obviously my, my social location and context is, is much, much different than the writers. One day I hope we all can hear their reflections on peace. Um, I think one thing that lifelines as well is it's the writer's way of asserting their own humanity, but I also think the pieces hold up a mirror to us, to the listeners, and sort of ask a question of us, you know, what does it mean for us to live in a world that, like Laura says, throws away people and things like trash, and I think their words, their writing demands something of us, demands that we work toward a kind of wholeness, like you said, a deeper sense of peace, believing that there can be no peace without justice, and so I think I think the writers kind of demand something of us. I also think that the fact that the pieces aren't all angry, they're not all um, communicating a sort of like radical political message. They also are pieces that um, where the guys, you know, talk about the kind of community that they have there, um, where they articulate the possibilities of peace that they find in the day-to-day struggle to live where they live. 
And I think there's something about being able to articulate those well, being able to tell those stories that point us toward peace. I, I think that I would agree with what Chris, everything Chris said and, and uh, add that I think as a Mennonite, speaking as a, as a Mennonite, I think we've, we've often been quick to think of peace as avoiding conflict and going taking the easy, or not, not necessarily in these words, but, but taking an, an easy route that sort of smooths things over and doesn't address difficult, the difficult questions under the surface. I think that we need to have the courage to seek a peace, uh, to, to act a peace that is beyond that, that does difficult things. And I think we, we can admit that it's maybe not the easiest thing to listen to people who are living in prison, to living on death row. In this country, we, we have the assumption, in the United States, we have this assumption that if you're on death row, if you're in prison, if you're on death row especially, that you belong there, right? That, that you did something and that you, you belong to be there. Whether or not a, a person did anything to, to, to arrive there, uh, these are the preconceptions that we come in with. And so I think just having the courage on, on the part of uh, people on the outside to listen uh, to these voices is, is an act of peace. Listening is an act of peace. Like Chris said, uh, these pieces can give us unexpected glimpses of peace in places that we wouldn't have looked for it otherwise. When Chris was talking, I, I, my mind was drawn to a wonderful piece by Ulrika Fowler called Bad Men, where he talks about the community that he and these fellow residents of death row experience there, how they have members of their community who go on cell visits, who visit the people who, can't, who aren't able to leave their cell on a given day, who uh, get together at certain times each day to play uh, card games around a table, who have interests and people who help, help the community resolve conflicts, uh, give each other haircuts, sort of the, the life on the road that when you're not connected with, with people living it, you might not realize happens. So when I think of peace, it's hard work uh, and, and it takes courage. I hope that Lifelines can encourage that sort of boldness for, its, for the members of the collective and listeners alike. And I think we do hope that at some point in the future, we'll be able to have a further conversation with some of the writers themselves also um, to kind of continue hearing from them. But if yeah. people listening to Peace Lab right now want to dig in, learn more, want to listen to the podcast, where can they find you? People could find us anywhere they get podcasts. Uh, so iTunes, Stitcher, wherever, Google Play. Uh, we also have a website, lifelines.is, lifelines.is, uh, and you can go there. So those are the main places that people can seek us out. We're also on a few different social media networks, too. And I feel like we just scratched the surface here. Um, really encourage folks to, to check out the website, listen to these things start to engage in this material. I, I thought what, what we said here today was, was beautiful. Let's do this hard work of peacemaking and, and listening to these stories and recognizing the humanity there is a big courageous step. And I, I'm looking forward to doing that more personally and I invite all our listeners to as well. Chris and Lars, thanks for taking time out of your schedules to talk to us today. And we look forward to connecting more in the future, as Hannah said, maybe on some more podcasts. Um, but blessings in your work and we will talk to you a little bit down the road. Really appreciate being with you. Yeah, thanks for having us. Yep, thanks for having us. And thank you for listening today. 
Peace Lab is a production of the Peace and Justice Support Network and the Mennonite Inc. magazine and website. You can find this episode and previous episodes of Peace Lab on iTunes, on Stitcher Radio, and also on the website of the Mennonite and the Peace and Justice Support Network. Do us a favor, download, subscribe, give us a like on these podcasts. It really helps us out. Uh, Hannah, thanks again for all your work in setting this up. This is a great, meaningful conversation. Look forward to seeing you again in a couple of weeks. Sounds good. Thanks, Jason.